Well, first time I've recorded one of these and it's raining. And now I have to find a dog. Where is the dog? Maybe she's inside. Let's see. There she is. Come on, let's go. Today is the 11th of December and it is now a quarter past 4 p.m. Come on, dog. As we get closer to the winter solstice, obviously it's getting darker earlier and the dog brings herself inside and goes up to one of the kids' rooms where she sleeps and settles down earlier and earlier until we get to the shortest day. Hi and welcome to episode 5 of the John Rogers Talk Show formerly known as the John Rogers Podcast. I have a radio show, most of you who are listening to this already know, called the John Rogers Show, that I broadcast live from the house there every Friday morning at 10 a.m. And it made sense to me to bring the podcast, this podcast, whatever this is, in underneath the same kind of name. I don't want to say a word that's spelled B-R-A-N-D. That word makes me queasy. But you know what I mean. Under the same title, really. So, from the John Rogers Show, you get the John Rogers Talk Show. It's a measure of how hard it is for me to get things done. To get anything done. Uh, how I tie myself up over not, in knots over what to call this and what to call that. Um, but I've decided to bring this in. Now it's called the John Rogers Talk Show. For a very simple reason. This is, you can skip this if it's boring. But I use a thing, a brilliant app called Mixler. I pay a subscription to Mixler, M-I-X-L-R. Uh, Mixler every month. Uh, and I get to broadcast my internet radio show on Mixler. And they also have an archive there where I can upload any show I've made and put it up there for playback. And then for the podcast, so the, the radio show is this hour or thereabouts of music and a little bit of chat with me and a little bit of, of interaction, a bit of crack with whoever's listening. Uh, but I can't, because I'm playing full, full tracks of music, I can't upload the radio show to a podcast uh, network like Gaycast or anywhere because of the music rights, not having the music rights. By the way, the forecast said that this rain was going to stop around now. It's only getting heavier, if anything. <sighs> but the dog must be walked, and so must I. Anyway... 
so the podcast has to be kind of separate from the radio show because of the music thing. Or the radio show, uh, uh, a better way of putting it, has to be separate from the podcast because of the music rights. But I can put the podcast and the radio show up together on Mixler. Um, because I've decided I'm going to start broadcasting this recording. So I'm going to do this recording, as I've done, every Monday. Go for a walk with the dog. Talk through whatever is on my mind. And then... Starting in the new year at some stage, start bringing in other people and either go for a walk with them or do a phone call with them and have an interview and a chat with somebody who I think is interesting and who I think you might find interesting. Uh, I'm going to record that on a Monday and then I'm going to broadcast it on the John Rogers Show uh, radio channel. Um, on a Tuesday, I think at 3pm And then after this broadcast It'll be up on Mixler But it'll also be up wherever you listen to podcasts So you still just need to look up John Rogers Talk Show And subscribe If you haven't done already If you've already descri- subscribed You don't have to do anything And a side note I still haven't fixed the glitch with Apple So none of this is up on Apple it doesn't bother me right now that none of this is very interesting because you can skip, you don't have to listen to. The whole point of me doing this pod, that's now called the John Rogers Talk Show, come on, dog, is uh, is because I'm figuring out why I'm doing this and what this is in doing it. I'm covering the microphone on the phone here to try and stop the rain getting in. So I've no idea if you can even hear any of this, but... We'll try. So. Excuse me. But. uh, To remember. The idea. The impetus in the first place of doing this. Podcast. This new talk show. Eventually is that it will become. Far more frequent where I am talking to somebody else than just talking to myself. Because, as I said on the first episode, the ultimate goal is to uh, get a team together of people and we will tackle something, be it climate change, and I'll get on to a bit about my the show I've just started working on, a new show, new theatre piece about climate change, or oh, this is a horrible evening, come on, Doc, uh, or something about cyber surveillance, like I talked about in the first pod, or problems with the rise of the far right in Ireland, Europe and else and abroad. Or the horror of what's going on in Gaza. We take something like that. Or we take something that can bring a lot of joy. We can talk. We can explore what makes a good book. What are the books we go back to time and time again and reread. 
Do we read books now as adults as we read them as kids? Is it ever possible to go back to the to that childlike joy of, re- of finding a book and falling into it? So you take any of these many, many areas that I'm fascinated about, put a team together, we explore them, but especially, or in particular, we explore them uh, with some agenda. So we're not just going to tell the story of cyber surveillance tools like Pegasus and Predator, but also we explore um, how can we change things for the better, if that's possible at all. So I want to get a team together to explore these things. Our own sort of open source intelligence crew. Uh, And I've no idea how to put that team together. So in the short term, all I can do is once a week spend an hour thinking out loud because that's what this is this is me thinking out loud as I figure out how to get to where I want to be so there you have it So, the people versus climate change is the name of a new piece of theatre that I'm working on. It's in its infancy. So, this UN intergovernmental conference on climate, the COP, what is it, COP28 or something, that one going on right now, or has just wrapped up at the moment, I've stopped following them because I don't know how much use they are, and especially I'm <laughs> disturbed that the current one is being shared by a petrol state, um, But there was one a few years ago, and the report that came out, what is it, three years ago now, uh, really scared the hell out of me. just how bad things are and just how bad things are going to get as regards regards climate to the point that it doesn't make sense to say climate change anymore we need to start calling climate crisis or climate catastrophe if the scientists are right now I don't want to I don't want to give the idea that I'm some sort of um, denier by any stretch of the imagination but if the scientists are right is something that I want to talk about Um, because that's not quite it if the scientists are right if they are right the science is actually pretty simple Um, 
it's the reality of climate and trying to predict well <laughs> trying to predict the weather is one thing trying to predict changes in the climate is is also uh equally difficult um so there's something i want to tease out when i say if the scientists are right i know a better way of putting it would be to, to put it would be if it's going to be as bad as most scientists feel it's going to be or or uh judge it will be then calling it climate change uh, lacks um lacks a certain urgency climate uh crisis climate catastrophe anyway this report that came out a few years ago was the one that really uh rattled me and it, it made me realize that there's not one type of climate denial but there's actually two types of climate denial so there's the climate change denial that we all know about these are the, the people either deluded or um, dishonest who think that climate change is either a hoax or an exaggeration or um, some sort of a conspiracy to um, I don't know why in the name of God anybody would conspire to come up with something like that like uh, that would uh have such a well a detrimental effect on commerce really oh my god I think it is turned the rain is finally starting to stop I thought I'd have to go back into the house anyway uh, as I was saying um, so we all know these climate change deniers And in many ways, I think they're on the run. You're going to, for some bizarre reason, you find a lot of them in Australia. And Australia has been ravaged by climate change already. Another part of the world where you'll get a lot of them is California, for some bizarre reason. California is another part of the world that is already getting ravaged by climate change. And all over the world... It's becoming harder and harder to deny what's obviously already taking place. There was a tornado in Leitrim Village yesterday, for crying out loud. It took a roof off a building, smashed up cars. Lucky nobody got killed. And I was on the back of not one, but two North Atlantic storms on one weekend. So, like I said, the deniers are on the run. But that UN intergovernmental report, uh, it made me realize that there's another type of climate change denier and that I am the other type of climate change denier. And I would argue that the vast majority of us are this type of climate change denier. I'm the sort of person who understands the science that if you put enough carbon in the atmosphere then 
the atmosphere starts to capture more heat from the sun than is usual and that increase in global temperature create, can create a catastrophic change to the climate. So, I get that. The science makes sense. But, every now and again I'd hear that over the last... I, 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 I first remember hearing about climate change back in the 1980s on some kids' TV show on the BBC where they described the greenhouse effect, which is another term for it, as how a fart can get trapped under a duvet. I thought that was very funny, but at the same time, even then, it made perfect sense. Come on, dog, let's roll. Thank God that rain stopped. So, hang on. She's a habit of going missing recently. Come on, let's roll. So, So I've known about this and I've understood it for a long time. But the more I heard about it, the less I wanted to hear about it. And I found myself subconsciously pretending it wasn't real. For a number of reasons. One, I think the main reason is that sense of horrible, sense of hopelessness. (sighs) It just feels impossible. I don't have the stats to hand and I'm not the sort of person who can remember statistics too well off the top of my head, but something like we've pumped more carbon in the last, I think it's something insane, like there was more carbon pumped into the atmosphere in the last decade than there was in all the previous decades and centuries before that, to the, back to the start of the Industrial Revolution when this problem really took hold. So when you realise that, it just feels like it's done. There's nothing we can do to stop it from happening. And therefore, I don't want to hear about it. And then there's little things that just add to that sense of, of denial. Um, one makes the effort to recycle all of one's plastics. Clean them out. Put them in a the recycling bin. And then you find out that most of that stuff doesn't actually get recycled and ends up in a hole in the ground anyway. Maybe not in Ireland, but it gets shipped to parts in the world who um, up until recently were happy to be paid money to take our crap and pollute their own water supplies with it. Denial. Climate denial. Come on, let's keep going. The rain has stopped. We'll keep walking up and down. So climate denial of that sort is actually more dangerous than the crazies who think it's a conspiracy or that George Soros or whatever your man's name is came up with it or um, it's all part of the plan of Bill Gates and the other lizard overlords to introduce the world government and the IMF will have all our children 
reading the Quran or fucking some sort of crazy shit like that. No, my climate change denial, the, I don't want to listen to this because I feel absolutely overwhelmed and there's nothing I can do about it, is a more insidious type of denial. And I felt that that report for some reason made it harder for me to ignore it. And I think it might have something to do with being a dad. I definitely think that's got something to do with it. The other reason for my denial is that I have always been a very optimistic person. And I have, I think, for lots of different reasons, partly because I ate up Star Trek The Next Generation as a kid, I have believed a narrative so deeply that I didn't realize it was a narrative that the human race is progressing. Not in a straight, smooth line, more like... uh, Uh, a saw edge, but we are progressing out of barbarity and towards a prosperous, civilized, peaceful future. Um, I read Steven Pinker's book, it's about 10 years ago now, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, and I added up. And I still am wary of people who will argue that there is no progress some argue that we're actually getting things are getting worse and others are saying no we are the way we've always been i think it's a little too self-indulgent to just say things aren't getting better and to ignore progress that has been made and uh i think it's worth looking at um recent history and by recent history i mean go back to the uh to the European revolutions of uh, 1848 and look at the Europe before 1848 and the Europe that is now progress has been made so I believed in this idea come on dog let's go back this way come on let's go let's go So climate change, climate catastrophe, hurt that internal narrative I had that things were going to get better. And then when you're a a parent of young kids, that idea that the world, the future would be better, is something that becomes almost sacred. And again, that's another reason why I didn't want to hear about climate change. But this report from a few years ago kind of snapped me out of it. And then I went through, and I'm still going through the process of kind of feeling pretty down about it, grieving it, finding it hard to be outside in nature because I just feel it's all polluted now. We've fucked it. Will the seasons 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, like in my lifetime and in my children's lifetime will will the seasons still exist as we now know them the things that help put a a very meaning on my year and on my life 
So, as pathetic and as useless as this sounds to me, the only solution I could think of, not a solution, but the only thing I could do, I could think of doing, was to turn this grief and this pain and this frustration into art, into theatre. The rain is back, so I think we'll go up to the house, and when we get into the house, I'll pause, and I'll continue this uh, walking over and back uh, in, my, in the house, in a room in the house. Anyway, so... I decided I had to make art on this. But I knew I couldn't do what I had done in the past as I spoke last week. I couldn't make another one person show. So it's taken me a long time to figure out what is it that I want to do. And I believe that what it is I want to do is I want to make a piece of nakedly, naked, naked um, political art. This is art with a naked agenda. And I want to create art that does something that seems preposterous, maybe even um, irresponsible. I want to create a work of art that radicalizes the, the audience into believing that right now, in 2023 and going into 2024, there is still hope. Because I think hope feels stupid right now. Therefore, I need to grab the fuck... Oh, I need to fucking grab a hold of it more now than ever. Hope. Hope that it's not too late. Hope that we can, as a community, as a country, as a continent, and as a world, we can... Oh, God, even saying it out loud sounds stupid. We can come together. And... What? Come together and what? Well, come together and acknowledge that we're in trouble. Come together and acknowledge there is no planet B. And come together and grieve together and come together and listen to the people with ideas to help us avoid the worst of it. Transition as quickly as possible away from coal and gas and other carbon-producing fuels as a means of creating energy. But also prepare ourselves for what's coming. Because some of it just cannot be avoided now. We've left it too late. And let us have challenging, honest conversations about what the future is probably going to be like when large sections of the planet may well be uninhabitable for large parts of the year and the huge migrations of people that that's going to cause.
But again, theater that somehow generates some sense of hope. And if I sound lost, as I talk to you right now, then trust me, I am lost. Okay, let me uh, get out of this whack here and uh, we'll resume in a few minutes. Okay, I'm inside now. And where was I? Oh yes, hope. I think I was getting a bit tied up in a knot there, trying to explain the inspiration for this new theater piece. Why don't I instead just talk about what it, what it is, what shape it has already in my head, what I'm doing about it to make it real. So it's called The People Versus Climate Change. And primarily it is a piece of theater that takes the format of a workshop. The audience are the participants in the workshop and the performers are myself, hopefully my colleague Sita and some others who are theater people and others from other backgrounds like other artistic disciplines, but also people who are architects, technologists, climate scientists, obviously, activists, politicians even. We'll call them the players. And they will facilitate the workshop. And the workshop will be a world-building workshop. Now, simply put, world-building is a tool that has been around for some time now. And it's used primarily in the creation of, let's say, science fiction worlds for a book, a film, a TV show, or for a computer game. It's used a lot in the creation of similar art for um, fantasy. It's used in, I would imagine, in the creation of worlds, fantasy or science fiction worlds, um, for... I think they're called tabletop games, like Dungeons and Dragons. And it's an incredible tool. I've, I, I've done a little bit of it with an artist based in London, a Dutch artist called en Anrik. And world building, let's take um, an example, let's say, of a... Oh, I don't know. A steampunk Galway, let's say. You want to create a steampunk Galway uh, world for a TV show, let's say. And what you do is you get your writers. This is one example of how world building would work. You get your writers in a room. 
And you create the world. The world that the story or stories are going to be set in. And you, if there's, if there's, sorry, if there's magic in the world that you're creating, you agree upon the rules of the magic. That not, if, if absolutely anything and everything is possible, then it becomes impossible to, to have any real danger if uh, the good guys can just do whatever they want with magic and get out of the problem. So you agree upon the rules. There has to be a logic within the illogic world, illogical or irrational world, that, that, or the seemingly irrational world that has been created. There has to be a rationality and rules and a logic and things like magic. And you agree upon the social structures. You agree upon how money works, how food is... Is, 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 is grown and raised and you agree upon the nuts and bolts of the world without worrying too much or without worrying at all about story. An example of world building, by the way, was how Steven Spielberg set about creating um, Minority Report. Malcolm McLaren was a production designer and he kind of created almost this school of world building where in trying to predict a Washington DC of the near future, they brought in not just production artists and costume designers, but also they brought in technologists, futurists, future historians, people who use the science of history and to God, it sounds like Asimov's foundation, but you know what I mean, to, to, to try and make a reasonable uh, prediction of what the future is going to be like. And and they created the world as they expected our future to be. And the story... And, and, and these people were all brought in in the early stages of, of, of the making of the film. And so the, the world they built helped infuse the story. So if I go back to the idea of the cyber or uh, steampunk Galway, you create this world without thinking at all about story or narrative or even about characters. So you create the world as a group. And then everybody involved in in, in creating this world is then allowed to uh, create a character for the world, a persona. Maybe it's a version of they, they themselves living in this world, or maybe they pick somebody a lot unlike them, but they, they, they create a character for the world or a persona for the world, and then they map out an ordinary day in the life, an ordinary Tuesday, for the person in this world. And then they present their characters to each other. And you will then find conflict. And some of the conflict is because there's disagreements still in how the world works and the group works together on overcoming that conflict. But other conflict is where the characters themselves are in conflict. Let's say fighting over resources or whatever. 
And out of that conflict comes drama and story. I hope I've done a half a decent job at explaining world building. I've never facilitated a world building workshop yet. That's coming soon. But I have been involved in one and it was powerful. Now for the people versus climate change, what I want to do is I want to set the scene with the audience who are also the workshop participants and set out the reality of the situation we're in right now and what we're facing a real assessment of where we are with climate change. As, um, I've forgotten his name. I'll have to go look it up and um, pop it in later as I uh, edit this before I put it online, but I've forgotten his name. It's not Webb Ellis, that's the (laughs) guy who apparently invented rugby. He's a journalist who writes for the New York Times. The two articles I'm talking about, uh, the first one is from October 2022, the New York Times magazine, Beyond Catastrophe, A New Climate Reality is Coming Into View. That's by David Wallace Wells. And then the other one is from September of this year from the London Review of Books, Treading Thin Air, written by Jeff Mann, on uncertainty and climate change. I'll put links for both those articles in the notes. Okay, back to the show. Anyway, he wrote a piece. This time it was actually for the New York Magazine, uh, where he um, he's a science writer, and he, he showed that one thing about us coming closer to the reality of climate change is that it's, we're starting to get a better idea of um, what we're facing into. So we're starting to see um, some good news in amongst all the bad. For instance, um, the rise in uh, um, renewables. The rate in the rise of renewables is far better than anyone predicted, than most people predicted, for instance. Um, The cost of renewable renewables isn't as high as people predicted, a lot of people predicted. And therefore, and that and a lot of, a lot of other reasons uh, makes it, uh, he claims, easier to predict what sort of a rise, what temperature rise we're going to be looking at in, this, in the decades and century ahead. And basically he says it's going to be, it's, it won't be, uh, it mightn't be as bad as we first feared, um, but it's still not going to be great. So we present that cold um, reality to the audience. By the way, since he wrote that piece about a year or two years ago, there is some argument to show that things are actually getting worse than we thought. But the problem is, Predicting the future is very hard, and predicting climate change is really hard. They, 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 the reasoning behind it is pretty straightforward, but the effects of a change of one or two degrees in global temperature, uh, or the actual prediction of the actual how many degrees of a rise in temperature we are going to end up with, is a lot 
harder to do. So the denial I talked about, I forgot to mention another part of the denial, the reason for my climate change denial, the head in the sand denial, is that we as a species are definitely in this part of the world in Western Europe and, and then we unfortunately polluted a lot of um, the global uh, culture uh, with, with our thinking. We have this um, obsession with the end of the world. Apparently, medievalists will tell us that um, a thousand years ago as we came uh, to um, uh, the change from the year 999 to the year 1000, um, an awful lot of people in Europe were convinced that the world was going to end. A thousand years later, as we changed over from... Uh, 1999 to 2000, it was interesting that the belief wasn't at this stage, a thousand years later, the global belief of, of an end of the world wasn't that of the the second coming. God wasn't going to come and uh, the rapture wasn't going to happen and the people weren't going to be judged between the, the good and the sinners, the saved and the damned, but that our new God, <laughs> the computers, our new gods, our digital gods, we're going to um, damn us all um, with the Y2K bug. And I think part of my climate denial, my head in the sand denial, is because, lo and behold, we woke up January 1st, 2020, or sorry, January 1st, 2000, and the sun came up, as usual, and the world didn't end. And we do this time and time again. We are obsessed. Look at the Booker Prize. Congratulations to the Irish writer, Paul, something or other, who won the Booker Prize. What is the book? The book is a dystopian future. A dystopian future Ireland that is sliding into um, a dictatorship. We are obsessed with the end of the world. And so... I think a good part of my psyche was convinced that climate change was another uh, instance of this um, conviction that we're all doomed. It's probably because we deep down know that we're all going to die, but we don't like to think about in our day to day. If we were to consider our death consciously in every moment, then that leads us not only to our own death, but to the death of the people who we love, who we love so much our hearts hurt. I have a few people like that in my life. We just grind to a halt. So we've developed our consciousness that has delivered us the unavoidable fact that we're going to die has quickly developed a sort of a defense mechanism, which is don't think about it. Um, and I think that bizarrely, and this is pop psychology, I shouldn't really even be thinking this stuff out loud because I don't know what I'm talking about, but my guess is that that creates a sort of a death wish that 
you know what, the pressure of that knowledge and knowing that I'm going to die at some stage would nearly make you want it to happen right away to get it over with. And I think that culminates or, or manifests, manifestates into this death wish and this obsession with the end of the world. That's a guess. Uh, and the other reason for the, the, my denial is that I have learned that the best way to deal with, and here I'm going to be very careful because I don't want to overshare, but the best way of dealing with um, depression and anxiety, not the best way, but one of the tools that has helped me is to remember to, as much as possible, stay in the here and the now. Don't be worrying about some other place or some other time. The past is done and it can cannot be altered. The future is, uh, to misquote Sarah Connor, unwritten. So worrying about climate change goes against that for me. No point worrying about it because we don't know what's going to happen. <sighs> well, assuming that it is going to be as bad as, as, as the consensus, and I would like to talk about that again, maybe not today, but another time where an awful lot of the prediction of the future is, is just that a prediction and you're dealing an awful lot of the time with the probability of a probability. So a lot of it is still guesswork and there's an interesting article that came up. I'll hunt it down and, and I'll post it uh, if I remember <laughs> in, in the notes on this episode. I'll find that article from um, your man from the New York Times as well. But it was an LRB article. And, and, and a London Review of Books, that is, about climate change from a few months ago. And reading that, you just realize just how much guesswork is involved in trying to predict where we're going to end up 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Maybe it won't be as bad as we fear. Maybe it'll be a whole lot worse. I haven't had the, the guts to read a report that came out, I think, about five years ago from a bunch of Australian scientists who predict in their study uh, pretty much um, full collapse of, global, of the world's civilization in about 50 years. Somewhat fitting that a bunch of Australian scientists will predict, have predicted a mad, a mad Max world future in my lifetime and your lifetime and in our children's lifetime. So that's sobering. I think you'll agree. We have to remember, though, it's still just that, a prediction. So hope. As mad as it seems to me right now, hope is more important now than ever. By the way, studies have shown that climate change art, climate 
catastrophe art that hopes to erase awareness of climate change and, 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 and imbue a sense of um, sense of what a sense of um, not action the word won't come to me like action anyway uh, agency that's it a sense of agency from the audience and the viewers of the art uh, studies show that the art that is hopeful, the art that conveys a sense of hope, is more likely to uh, engender a sense, or uh, engender actual activity from the, from, from the audience. Now, does that translate into an actual change? Or does it just make the audience member feel a bit better about themselves? I don't know. I'm still going to aim for a combination of still believing deep down, as irresponsible as this may sound, that maybe it won't be as bad as we think, as we fear, because we've done that so many times, but that it's still something that needs to be addressed and it needs, it's something that needs to be tackled. So the people versus climate change starts with us laying out the facts to get back to what I was saying. Laying out the facts as we know them and understand them. And then I set the audience, the workshop participants, the audacious uh, task. And that is to predict, or sorry, is to build a world. Galway 2050. So just over 25 years from now, Galway 2050. Might even call the piece that, rather than people versus climate change. But anyway, we do, we create a world in less than three decades from now, wherein somehow globally we've managed to avoid the worst of climate change. Not only that, but we have found global peace and prosperity for the vast majority of the people living on the planet. And. To imagine a Galway city or Galway county in that world. And to create that world, to build that world, and then to create your character who lives in that world. It might even be you, 25 years from now, living in that world. Can you imagine it and can you build it as a group? And then we present that world to each other. We don't worry about how we could have gotten there. We just imagine what would it be like if we do get there. Even if it seems impossible right now. We imagine that world. You create your character and then we present it to each other. We don't shy from the conflicts that will arise. But we build and then play around with this this utopia and then the last part is where the experts come in as we somehow figure out how we get from the mess we're in now to that well, that shining city in a hill, if you will.
Is it possible? And if it is, what do we need to do now? What are the sacrifices we need to make now to help ensure that we get there? And that's the people versus climate change. And that's, that's the core. That's the world-building workshop at the core of the people versus climate change. And Zita and I have already worked with Anric uh, a few weeks ago. And in the new year, we're going to be working um, with some students in um, University of Galway uh, to um, try out, to workshop the workshop, if you will, to... Um, to run a few test workshops so we can learn how to world build and how to do it. And that workshop, the world building workshop is at the core of the people versus climate change. But the overall greater piece is bigger than, than, than just that workshop. It, the, the dream I have is a piece of theater that is a piece of Boal-inspired forum theatre, political theatre. What is forum theatre? It comes from theatre of the oppressed. Well, I'll get into that another time. But basically, it is theatre that brings about, that aims to bring about real-world change. Not just in how we feel, and that's important, by the way, imbuing that sense of hope, but also that sense of urgency, but actually makes a material change in how we live as a society and as a community. I don't know how to do that, but I'm hoping that I will learn how to do it in doing it, just as I'm hoping that I will be able to create whatever it is talk show is by doing it I will learn how to make the people versus climate change by making it I've never done this before I've never publicly spoken about what it is I'm making as I'm making it and I'm a little nervous about it but fuck it Because I need a team. Right now I have Zita. Thank God. Zita, if you're listening, I love you. And I thank God you're on board. And I have Anric to go back to if and when I run into trouble with the world building. But I'm going to need more than that. And right now I don't have a budget. So this is going to require some sort of Arts Council funding, Galway City Council funding, Galway County Council funding. climate change activism funding. But it starts with the workshop. In that workshop, we'll learn how to do it by workshopping with the students in the university. In January, February, that's date is to be nailed down. And then We work from there and we bring this workshop into 
the community. We're going to bring it to schools. We're going to bring it to GA clubs. We're going to bring it to community centers. We're going to bring it to businesses. We're going to bring it everywhere. We'll all, and we'll get as many people in Galway building this better Galway. And that'll be the start. Okay. Thanks for listening. Next week will be the last John Rogers talk show of 2023. Uh, and I'm going to talk about Christmas. Um, the John Rogers show, the John Rogers radio show will be uh, live Friday morning at 10 a.m. And the following Friday will be the John Rogers Christmas show. So johnrogersshow.com, that's where you go for all of this. Or look for John Rogers Show wherever you listen to podcasts to find this. And uh, spread the word, (laughs) spread the love, and uh, don't give up the ghost. Okay. Talk soon. Sloan.